Well, tonight we'll begin with reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. We're going to read question and answer number one, and then number 123. And then after that we'll be uh, picking up Psalm 91. We can read this together, Heidelberg Catechism. I'll ask the question and then we can respond with the answer. This is Lord's Day 1 and question and answer number 1. So the question there is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Then you can turn over to question and answer number 123. It's Lord's Day 48 in the Trinity Psalter hymnal, page 895. 123. The question there is, what does the second petition mean? The second petition, of course, being uh, the Lord's Prayer there. So what does the second petition mean? The answer, your kingdom come means, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church, destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. We're not going to be fleshing out those two question and answers uh, in their entirety. Our focus is going to be on Psalm 91, but we want to read those together to set our mind um, into that orientation as we as we look at God's word here, confessing that our comfort is in Christ and that similar themes to what we looked at this morning, uh, that Christ through his death and resurrection has defeated the work of the devil. And so now we'll read uh, Psalm 91. I'll read this. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. We'll take the whole psalm. Uh, We, of course, can't uh, dive into the depths of, of all of it, but we'll take it in its entirety. This is God's word. We read this in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, 
but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let's ask for God's blessing as we uh, study his word together. Almighty and gracious God, Lord, as we come before your word, we again acknowledge our weakness and frailty. Lord, we uh, confess that so often and so easily we can be distracted in our minds and in our hearts. We ask then, Lord, that by your spirit, you would help us to, to see what you would have us see from your word. Help us to focus not on the words of men, but to focus on, on your holy and divine word and, and the word that you give us about your son, Jesus Christ, and the, the salvation that we have in him. So, Lord, we pray in humility that you would help us, aid us, open up our hearts, open up our minds to better understand your word and who you are and what you've done for us. And, and show us, Lord, as the psalmist says here, show us your salvation. So, Lord, we turn to you, our shelter and our refuge. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was John Owen in 1670 who said, This is an overwhelming time. This is an overwhelming time. Several years before he said that, King Charles II had passed the Act of Uniformity. And there were over 2,000 pastors who were booted out of their churches. Imagine that. I mean, in the URC, we, we hardly have 200 churches. This was 2,000 pastors all at once, gone, booted out through the Act of Uniformity. Then a little while later, the Five Mile Act was passed, where these pastors then, who would not conform themselves to the Church of England, conform themselves to the, the power of the, the bishops and so forth, to the king and so forth, they said, no, we are under God. Those pastors who would not conform to this then were not allowed to live within five miles of a town where they had previously ministered. And then in 1665 and 1666, there was the great bubonic plague that broke out, and in under a year there were over 100,000 people who died in London alone. Then there was the Great Fire of London, which in less than four days incinerated about a third of the city. And so maybe to say this is an overwhelming time is a bit of an understatement. Well, thanks be to God, many of us have not lived through that kind of a disastrous time. Praise God for that. Many of us have, have really lived a life of ease and peace in a lot of ways. We can praise God for that. Yet, nevertheless, we, we know, you and I know all too well, that often in our life we do feel as though there are things that overwhelm us. Sick children, sick parents or spouses, our own health concerns, mental 
health, vicious battles with temptations, political or economic instability, wars in distant countries, significant accidents, sudden death of a loved one, these sorts of things. And sometimes we do feel overwhelmed. But what do we do in those times? God's word here urges us to go to the one who can save us, to put our trust in the God who is able to deliver us, to run to the cross, because there in Jesus' death, in what Walter Chantry called the shadow of the cross, there at Calvary, you and I find shelter from the storms of life. And then in the bright rays of Easter morning, you and I are given that great promise of eternal life that Jesus won for us. And so our theme is trust in Christ and find salvation and comfort in the shadow of His cross. Well, we're going to pick up first verses 1 through 10. Look at the danger and protection there that's described there. And just two quick notes as we dive into this text. Um, Firstly, uh, you might have noticed that there is no superscript over the Psalms. If you're familiar with the book of Psalms, there's a lot of Psalms that have just a brief little description that might tell us something about who wrote it, what the setting was, or so on and so forth. We don't have that here. So we don't know exactly what the historical background was, um, but the, the, best, the best guess that scholars give is that uh, it was maybe a king who was at battle, perhaps even David himself, um, and, and it's clear he's facing himself an overwhelming time. And then the other thing just to quickly note is that as you read through, you might see how the author very easily jumps between uh, different characters who are speaking and who's being spoken to, and so forth. In our psalm here, we have the main character, and we've got a narrator, then we've got God himself. We're not going to slow down every time to note who exactly is speaking, but that's a helpful thing to note as as you read through the psalm yourself, and, and also just as you read through the Psalter, it's, uh, it's, it's a very common thing for the author to jump between those things. But here anyways, whatever the setting is, the the main character is facing some incredible difficulties, some very overwhelming times. And it seems like he's just getting battered from every single direction, every angle. But then we read in those opening couple of verses there, these beautiful words, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. In the middle of the struggles, these these intense struggles, the confession of the psalmist is, God is my refuge. God is my fortress. He's my God, and I trust in Him. The Bible shows us here somebody who's cast himself completely on the power, the protection of God. He's not trusting in his own strength. He's not trusting in his own military power or abilities. He's not trusting in his accolades, whatever else. No, he's trusting in God. And you and I know all too well that in our world, our own hearts as well, we can so easily trust in money, in educational degrees, social connections, job security, national power on the international stage. All of these things. Our world trusts in these things. You and I are so often tempted to trust in these things. But we are reminded the Christian is one who entrusts themselves to God, as our confession said, in life and in death. The psalmist here says, I trust in my God. 
What an amazing confession. The God who is, who's called there in verses 1 and 2, Elion is his name, the Most High, the God who is above all other powers, the God who is above all other gods. He is named Almighty or Shaddai. He's the all-knowing, the all-powerful God who protected the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The God about whom Psalm 83 says, the Most High who is over all the earth. This is the God who cuts down all other gods down to size, isn't it? He's called the Lord, Yahweh. The God who enters into covenant with His people, binds Himself to them to protect them, to carry them through. The God who is personal. You know, we could we could reshape this maybe into the words of a, a taunt. You know, the psalmist could say, I'm not sure what your gods are all up to. The God of Moloch or Baal or Osiris, these ancient deities, I don't know what they're up to, but my God in whom I trust, He is my refuge. And that's what we need to say as well. The gods of this world, sports, economics, whatever it might be, our trust is in God. Well, what kind of what are some of the troubles that are faced here? Verse three, we read, "For he, God, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler." So that's the narrator talking there. Well, what's a fowler? A fowler is just simply a, a bird hunter, a bird catcher. Uh, my wife and I, yesterday on our way here, we drove through. I can't remember the name of the place anymore, but uh, a, a nat- nature reserve very close to here. I'm sure you know the one I'm talking about. And as we drove through there, we saw a host of of waterfowl, these birds. There's tons of them, mostly Canadian geese. And as some other Canadians will tell you, you can can keep all those. Uh, But there were tons of birds. And in the ancient world, uh, the ancients had lots of ways of hunting, trapping, catching these things. They didn't have shotguns, uh, but they would lay often a net on the ground. Then they they would put bait in it. And the fowler, the bird hunter, could then pull on the string when the birds were inside and the net would uh, come up and catch the birds. Or there's another way that they could use bow-shaped wood and the, the net would suddenly clamp shut like a clamp. Well, the metaphorical language here, it's, it's a word picture. The, the main character is this bird and you can imagine as a bird the, the traumatic experience it would be to suddenly be snatched up in a net. But in the psalm, God delivers the believer from this metaphorical trap. He delivers him also from deadly pestilence. And so we can see there's these human creaturely devices coming against the main character. There's also natural disasters, natural dangers like pestilence. There's evil in this world we know uh, that has malicious intent behind it. But then there's also the effects of simply living in a broken world, isn't there? Verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. What, what beautiful imagery. And, and this is common imagery, This speaking of a, a mother bird protecting her chicks. Again, the main character you know, metaphorically being like, okay, I'm that little chick, and the mother bird is protecting me. Right? I don't know if you've seen mother birds protecting their chicks. I've seen an owl one time try to uh, steal a couple of chicks from a hen house and the mother fought it off and that bird flew out of there with a terrified look on its face and no dinner. There's ducks who will protect their, their offspring from crows, swans from foxes, so forth. 
You can imagine again, as a little chick, you have a mother bird who's willing to lay her life on the line for you. But then God is also a mighty shield. His faithfulness is like a a strong iron shield that protects the believer. And so we have this beautiful imagery here that God's faithfulness protects the one who trusts in him, both with the tenderness of a mother bird, but then also with the iron-clad strength of a warrior's shield. In verses 5 and 6, there we have two merisms. You ask, what is a merism? Well, in wedding vows, we have merisms. We say things like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, i.e., A and X and everything in between, right? And so here, the night terror, from the night terror to the daytime arrow, from the pestilence of darkness to noonday destruction and all the dangers in between, God is your shelter. You have nothing to fear. Verse 7 there, a thousand might fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. It can feel like you know, there's people falling, dropping like flies all around the believer. But the danger will not come near. This person finds themselves in a pretty frightful scene, doesn't he? Traps set all around, arrows flying past. And behind those traps, you again see, behind those arrows, you see the gleaming eyes of the adversaries. And then there's sickness that lurks around the corners like an assassin. Death and danger on every side. And yet, what does the beginning of verse 5 say? You will not fear. And the end of verse 7. These dangers will not come near you. Then the narrator in in verses 8 and 10, he says there, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. And again, we can see there in those verses that there is this malicious and creaturely evil, but then there there are also natural and inanimate dangers as a result of a fallen world. But through it all, God is the great protector. And of course, that desire for protection is something pretty standard fare for you and I, isn't it? I mean, that's why... We pay for software so we don't get hacked. We're careful who we give our credit card numbers to. We lock our houses and our cars, maybe. We take our vitamins or supplements, parts of the U.S. We carry our own uh, weapons, things like that. Our nation trains the the anti-air, anti-nuclear missile defense systems at the sky. We understand this need for protection, don't we? We look for protection. We need it. And sometimes we might feel as though there's dangers on every side. Again, those, those creaturely evils where other people might hate us, might try to bring us down at the workplace maybe, have us fired or, or whatever it might be. People trying to hurt us sometimes. As Christians, we can be persecuted for the cause of Christ. And then, of course, there's that ultimate enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking who he would destroy. And then there are those effects of living in a sin-cursed world. Disease and and death that sometimes seems as though it's all around us. And now we don't want to be 
we don't we don't want to be completely pessimistic. We don't want to miss also the fact that uh, God often does bless us. My wife and I were commenting last week. We enjoyed a, a beautiful Easter dinner with friends. We had a wonderful time. You know, one of those moments where you enjoy God's gifts and it's as if you just forget about all the cares in the world. We praise God for that. But in the tenor of the text here, we know, and if we're honest, we confess, we often do live in a world that feels as though there's darkness and danger on all sides. Well, maybe, my friends, you don't have you know, bird traps lying outside your front door. You might not have arrows whizzing by you, hopefully no bullets either. But we have an enemy, a great enemy, the devil, don't we? Who is always seeking to undo us, who is always attacking us, who is always trying to bring temptation into our path, to try to catch us off guard, to turn us away from Scripture, to turn us away from Christ. And he's firing those those razor-sharp darts at us. And we must be vigilant. We must always hold fast to the Word of God. Take up that shield of faith. And then also there's those, those diseases and those bodily ailments. And sometimes it seems like you know, Aunt Marge, cancer. John, car crash. Mom, diabetes. You know, what, what kind of assassin-like disease might be in my body or the body of my, my loved ones? Yet the beautiful irony of the text here is that in an ultimate sense, Nothing will befall, nothing will fall on the believer. Nothing is able to, to fall upon them. No evil. Even though it seems as though thousands are falling all around. Because, verse 9, you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge. And the Psalms remind us over and over again, don't they, about the fatherly protection of our God as we confessed from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, that our Father who is in heaven, He cares for us, He watches over us, so that not a hair can fall from our head, as Jesus says. Now, maybe for some of us, hair loss is a, a, a pretty scary thing, um, but there are so many greater evils and dangers in this world uh, than that. But then how? How do we find ultimate salvation? What is the ultimate answer to these dangers and trials? Well, the second half of our psalm points us in, that, in the direction of the answer. Verses 11 through 16. Christ's victory and God's blessing. We see there in verses 11 and 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a rock. Well, in ancient Mesopotamian texts, there was a lot of talk about Angels, the gods would send guardian angels, and this passage here isn't necessarily telling us that God sends a guardian angel for every believer necessarily, but we do know in the scriptures that the angels are God's messengers who obey his word, who are sent out to do his bidding. Psalm 103, to do the will of God. You can think of what Jesus says in Matthew 18, that he says there, see that you do not despair uh, despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 18, verse 10. And then Hebrews 1, angels are ministering spirits who are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And so here in the psalm, God commands his angels 
to guard over this main character here. They'll carry you in their arms, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Remember, of course, if you're out and about in ancient Palestine, there's some pretty rugged terrain and territory. And this is the day before you know, Timberland steel-toe boots or, or even uh, Nike closed-toe shoes. There's lots of opportunity for stubbing your toe. And we know how uh, painful it is to stub our toe. And yet, here this promise, this wonderful promise, you will not even strike your foot against a stone. But then there's also the, the danger of these, these vicious creatures here, the snakes and the lions. Well, Palestine has quite a number of deadly snakes. And even today still with anti-serums and modern medicine and so forth, there are still people who die from snake bites. Quite common. One of my favorite places in all the world is, is Ecuador. And uh, there was one time when uh, my wife and I, Natalie, this was before we were married, we were on her father's farm in the coastal uh, jungle regions of Ecuador. And uh, we went out for a walk, and we didn't check the clock. And so by the time we were on the way back, it was starting to get dusk. And uh, my Natalie, at the time, who was not my wife yet, she she starting to get uneasy, uncomfortable, starting to get worried. Said, well, why? She says, well, this is the time of day when the vipers start to get active. And of course... Naive, silly me. Oh, really? Where? Well, we walked back pretty carefully. Thankfully, we had a flashlight, carefully walking step by step, because to step on a, a viper or step within the strike range of a viper could cost you your life. That's to say nothing of the lion, the king of beasts. If you go to the Chicago Museum, there's a little exhibit there about the two man-eating lions of Tsavo, who in a nine-month span killed and ate some uh, perhaps 35 people in Uganda. The king of beasts, the mere roar of which can melt a man's heart or turn a man's heart to, to ice. But the text here says so beautifully, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The poetical irony is so beautiful here. God is protecting you. Your foot will not strike against a stone. Your foot will instead tread down, trample the lion and the snake. Well, my friends, let's, let's camp out here for just a minute and think about how Jesus Christ is the ultimate head crusher, the one who crushes the serpent and the lion. You might have recognized those verses if you're familiar with Scripture. Because in Luke 4, in the temptations where the devil is tempting Jesus, he quotes from the psalm. It's the third temptation in Luke's gospel. The devil there, he takes Christ up to the pinnacle of the temple and he says, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... And then he quotes from Psalm 91. I'll read it from Luke. And you can look here at these, at these verses. On their hands... Uh, verses, verses 11 and 12. So the devil says from Psalm 91, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know, one of the scary things about the devil is that he knows the scriptures. And, and in some ways we might almost say, well, shame on us, because often we, we can't even get the, the list of the books in order let alone know what's in them. The devil 
He knows the scriptures. And his temptation is, is kind of, you know, come on, Jesus. You're, you're the son of God. You, know, you live in God's shadow protection, but did God really say that he was going to protect you? Come on, throw yourself down. God will save you. The devil, always the, the twister of Scripture, and Christ, of course, answers him, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But the real question we have to, we have to ask, addressing the elephant, is the, the elephant in the room, is why did the devil quote just these verses? Why didn't he quote a little further? You know, one of the one of the challenges, one of the ways that the devil often uses liberal theologians is, is not just that they twist scripture, but often that they pluck it out of context. They don't pay attention to what's surrounding it. And and the question here, I think, that's staring us in the face is why didn't the devil quote then from verse 13? Well, maybe, maybe that sounded too much like Genesis 3, verse 15. That great old promise about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. It's no coincidence, you see, my friends, that in Scripture, the, the devil is called both a lion and a serpent. Right? And here, Psalm 91, this psalm is ultimately about Christ. It's ultimately about Jesus. And Jesus is the one who tramples down the devil the snake, that ancient uh, foe, the lion. And he did that as the seed of the woman on the cross and through his resurrection again, trampling down that dragon underfoot, bringing to destruction the forces of Satan. He did that when he died upon the cross. And Jesus, now he reigns in heaven as the victorious conqueror with not only the devil's neck under his foot, but all of God's enemies being brought into submission to Him. Jesus Christ, He is the great serpent crusher. And the only place for you and I to truly find deliverance in this life, in this world, is beneath the shadow of His cross. And then look at the way that our psalm ends, these beautiful words. The last three verses there. Because He holds fast to me in love, I will deliver Him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. These eight things here, these eight promises of God for protection and salvation, they can only truly be said of Christ. Christ is the one who held fast to the Father in love. We don't. Christ held fast to the Father resolutely. You and I don't. We fail. We forget God. We turn from God so often. We do not hold fast to Him. So often we do not call upon His name. Christ did. And even that great cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in that moment, He was holding fast to the Father in love. To the bitter end. He never wavered. And then what happened? God, of course, delivered him. The Father delivered him. He ultimately protected and rescued him. The Father was ultimately that shelter and refuge, that fortress to Christ. And God then raised the Lord Jesus up. He exalted him. He honored him with that name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee one day will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. And God ultimately honored Christ with, the psalm says here, long life, eternal life. And why? All for your sake and for my sake. That you and I then also can turn to God, can cling to Him in love, to hold fast to Him, and to know that these words then through Christ also become true for us. That these beautiful words, I am with you in trouble. We can find salvation and comfort at the foot of the cross. We can find in Christ that God will satisfy us with eternal life. And so my friends, as we wrap up here this evening, we want to say first to start that God may very well deliver us from evil at times. And we can pray for that. And we can expect that. And I I imagine there are some of us here who have stories of when God did really in a tangible way deliver us from some sort of evil. I myself have three of my own stories of where the Lord saved my life, spared me when I was on uh, just about death's doorstep. We can expect that. We know that. God is able to do that. But our question here from, from this psalm is, What if God doesn't? What if God doesn't deliver us physically? Has he failed as a refuge? Is his shield of faithfulness shattered, too weak, not able to deliver us? The resounding answer, of course, is no. Not at all. Not in the least bit. Because as we confess, and as as the psalmist confessed, I have trusted in God and in His salvation, and I hold fast, then in New Testament terms, hold fast to Christ in love, that Jesus is my shelter. He is my refuge, and I live in the shadow of His cross. If this is your confession, if this is my confession, the Bible promises us that even though we go through that valley of, of the shadow of death, that we will be satisfied with long life, with that everlasting life, that we will be honored with Christ the King. We even now already, says Paul, reign with Him by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, my friends, our call this afternoon is to cry out to God, my God, my refuge. Is this your confession? Do you know what it is to dwell in the shadow of the cross? Do you know what it is to say, Jesus Christ, you are my only comfort in life and in death? Maybe you've forgotten this. Sometimes we go through seasons where we forget this. Scripture urges us again to run back to the cross, to go back, to cling to Him again in trust and in love and to find in Him deliverance. There at the foot of the cross of Christ, your sins are covered over. There you find shelter from the wrath of God. That man on the cross is your only hope for entrance into heaven. His blood is able to take all of your sins away. And so this is also then the message that we have for a dying and a broken world. The unbeliever, where do they turn in times of trouble? They have nowhere to go. They have no refuge. They have no shelter. We come alongside our neighbors and we point them to the cross. We say there is a God who offers you salvation. Well, we can remember as we close these 
the, what Paul says to the Corinthians, that we, we know that God is able to deliver us, but we think about Paul and how he and his companions faced so many hardships. He talks about how he was lashed, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked. He faced dangers from rivers, from robbers, from the Jews, from the Gentiles, in cities and deserts, in seas. He experienced sleepless nights. He was cold. He was hungry. He was thirsty. Yet he writes these beautiful words in 2 Corinthians 1 that we nearly despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely, he says, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Because because in Christ, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And then lastly, Jesus Christ is the one who has defeated Satan and all of the evils of the world, like we talked about this morning. And you know, you and I actually sit in heaven with Christ through the work of the Spirit, as we already said. We share in Christ's victory. Again, in, in Ecuador... In the capital city, there's a famous statue up on a hill. You can see it from all around. It's called La Virgen del Panecillo. It's, and, and that statue there, La Virgen del Panecillo, you know what it is? It's Mary. You know what she's doing? She's standing with chains in her hands, and those chains are connected to the neck of a snake. And she has that snake under her feet. You know, that's blasphemous. That is absolutely blasphemous. It is not the woman who crushes the serpent. It is the seed of the woman. It is not Mary who defeats the devil. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is blasphemous to, to make a statue like that. And yet, you know what the beautiful thing is? That God says to you and to me that because of Christ and His victory, He says this in Romans, Paul says this in Romans chapter 16, that we actually share in the victory of Christ. God says there that he, is, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. We share in that victory of Christ by faith. And that gives us such great hope and strength that when we face the trials and the troubles of this world, we can look again to Christ. We can find there in Him deliverance, salvation. And we can know that even when we go through dark times in this life, Christ has won the victory. And there is ultimate victory in his resurrection life. God has shown us his salvation in Christ and he will satisfy us with eternal life. Let's pray. Oh great God, Lord, we bow before you and Lord, we confess that you are our only comfort in life and in death. We confess that we have been purchased body and soul through our Savior Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. Help us, Lord, then to find shelter in the shadow of His cross, to know that our sins have been fully paid for with the precious blood of our Savior, to know that He has delivered us from the devil's tyranny by triumphing over sin, over the devil, over all of His forces at Calvary, and that He watches over us like a great shepherd, and that without your Father...